Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the final Trump drama. And Richard, telling about the era that we're in that we called last week's show The Last Days of Donald Trump. And here we are talking about Donald Trump again. So after the siege of the Capitol last week, we've had calls for all manner of punishment against Donald Trump. And this is such unusual territory that a lot of people are opining with probably unwarranted confidence on constitutional questions that simply don't come up that often. So uh, let's just sort of take them in turn. I want to start with the 25th Amendment. Democrats in Congress encouraged Vice President Pence to go down that road. In fact, held it out as a sort of ultimatum that if he didn't, they would go forward with impeachment. And of course he didn't, and they did. Yet some conservatives have criticized that move, saying that the Congress should have nothing to do with the invocation of the 25th Amendment. So walk us through your diagnosis of whether it was even an appropriate weapon to be considered here? Well, I think the first thing to do is to start with the text of Section 4, which reads, whenever the vice president and the majority of either of the principal officers of the executive departments and so on, transmit to the president temper of the Senate and the speaker and so forth, uh, the vice president shall immediately uh, assume duty. But they have to make a declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. The word is unable. It is left, as is typical in these cases, undefined. So the first thing is we know where the responsibility lies. And then the question is whether or not the uh, vice president can take advice. And the answer is, of course, he can before he makes that decision. He's supposed to liberate with this cabinet. Uh, the question then is whether outsiders can also chime in on this particular point. I think the answer to that question is everybody's entitled to do it. I do think, however, that Ms. Pelosi went way over the top when she said, if you don't do this, what I'm going to do is to begin impeachment against the president. Just take it one step further. Suppose she had said to Mr. Pence, if you don't do this, I'm going to bring uh, an impeachment against you uh, for the violation of your particular office because you refuse to agree with me. So I think, in effect, that you know, people who constantly worry about the rule of law uh, should be worried about the Orel threat that took place in here. Then there's the question of whether or not it turns out that the uh, president is unable to uh, discharge the powers and duties of his office. Unable is always a very tricky word, but the man is certainly comatose, not comatose. He's walking around. His administration seems to be running pretty well. Uh, there's a lot of dispute about what he said. Uh, and certainly afterwards, there's been no sign that he has been demented or depraved in any way, shape or form. Uh, and so if your question is not whether he committed an impeachable office, offense, very different question from able. I think the answer is he is not unable to discharge the functions of the office, even if Ms. Pelosi and others believe that he's, quote unquote, a clear and present danger to the nation, although the only thing that he was a danger to was the Capitol building, an enormous a breach of good sense and so forth. But I don't think he's going to jeopardize with us a nuclear war or something of that sort. So I think in offense that Pence was right to stand up uh, uh, to Ms. Pelosi, refused to yield to that kind of blandishment. In fact, if there's anybody who might have engaged in some kind of an impeachable offense, it's Ms. Pelosi for asking this kind of question, which is so contrary to the law and the spirit of the 25th Amendment. Uh, so I think Pence comes out as a hero in this. 
He also, I think, got it right when it came to the invocation of the 12th Amendment. Uh, What it does is it gives him the power to open all of the receipts that they get from the various state delegations. He doesn't even have the power to count them. That is put in what I like to call the constitutional passive. It says the ballot shall be counted. Well, probably by a clerk. And the thought that that gives you the opportunity to re-examine all of the determinations that were made in the various states, that's just wrong. And here I want to make it very clear, there's, I think, a real confusion about the crop of grounds on this. Uh, There are lots of people to this day who still believe that there was something irregular, particularly in Georgia. But this thing has been adjudicated, and the answer is you don't question this because it's race judicata. It's a final judgment, and you cannot go behind a final judgment to relitigate the questions after they've been litigated. Uh, It does not, because it's a final judgment indicate that it's true. It's just final. And we cannot run a legal system if, in fact, we allow people to constantly go behind these things. But now, go forward in time. It is now the Biden administration. And there are a large number of individuals who are Trump supporters decide that they really want to give a very close look at the machinery and the ballot counting and the circumstances in each of these key jurisdictions. In Atlanta, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, for example, perhaps Phoenix. Well, there's nothing whatsoever that's inappropriate about this. Uh, To say that it's inappropriate is to say that after the Watergate thing was resolved with the resignation of President Nixon in August of 1974, nobody could look further at the action. And so it's very understanding that race judicator only binds you on the merits for the case. It has nothing to do with collateral investigations that are not part of the litigation. And I think that Trump, Pence was absolutely right when he told Trump this is completely inappropriate. So we have a man who's setting up against two people, both of whom have to put it mildly forceful personalities, neither of whom was correct in the particular challenge that they made. And so I think he comes up as the only person out of this thing who could hold his head up with pride. There was a single article of impeachment passed by the House of Representatives, the charge in which is incitement of insurrection. In your judgment, is that a fair characterization of President Trump's conduct? And if not, do you think a different article of impeachment may have been more defensible? Uh, well, first of all, if you're taking this, the word is, you know, uh, whether it's incitement to what? Insurrection, right? Um, I don't think that anybody would call this an insurrection. I don't think if it was some private party who engaged in this, uh, you would treat that as a criminal situation. That is not dispositive in this particular case, because even if it were an incitement to riot, I think that one could say that that could count as a high crime and misdemeanor, given that the location took place in the Capitol building where all sorts of powerful institutional capital uh, turns out to be done. Uh, The question, though, is incitement does require a very close examination of the causal connection between the statements that were made on the one hand and the particular actions on the other. And what they did in this particular case is they took one sentence, uh, which said the president called on his people to continue to fight on. A fight on could mean one of two things. It could mean go in there and beat everybody up in sight, or it means continue to exercise all of the political rights that you have in order to protest the judgment. And even if it turns out that the decision is and should be race judicata, that is, the election is over, it is not wrong to urge somebody to take the contrary position if the question is whether that's an impeachable offense. It's not. So that is the question, is what did he actually urge them? And the reason why the indictment, as it were, the article impeachment is so suspect, is that it only refers to that one section, which is ambiguous, and then it ignores the other sentence, which he says continue with a peaceful protest. And 
the question is how you put those two things together. And that's just the beginning. There were two other speeches that were done on that particular occasion. It's not at all clear whether anybody who was located outside the White House about a mile and a half from the Capitol building was actually involved in what went on. Nobody is quite sure who listened to what when they were involved in these things. So if you're trying to do this as a serious case, you have many moving parties. You get the insiders, so-called, you get the intermediate groups, and then you get the final action. Nobody here doubts that anybody who broke in, whether they are a Trump supporter or a Trump opponent, and they've been charges of false flags, which again, professors of law don't make any comment about, none of those people get excused for anything. Uh, And if it turns out that there was somebody at the site who didn't enter the building and said to everybody else, charge, go in and break everything down, that person is clearly guilty of incitement. Uh, But you're several layers removed, and nothing is more difficult than the law to figure out what to do uh, than with respect to anticipatory action. So the easy case, which this is not, is one where the president is sitting in the front of his fireplace and talking out, and he says, I really do wish that people would essentially go to the Capitol building and protest everything that's going on. That's not going to be regarded as incitement because there are too many steps between the broadcast, the assembly of the crowd, and the movement. In this case, the chain is much, much shorter. So the way in which I would put it is, I'm not going to say this is not an impeachable offense. I think there's a very substantial, but by no means certain probability that it is. But what I will say is that if you are engaged in an act of impeachment, you basically want to recover all of the evidence that you could possibly assemble before you make any particular judgment. And this was clearly a case in which they were so determined to get the impeachment because they thought, I think wrongly, that if they impeach while he's in office, they can try him while he's out of office. And I've taken, again, a close look at the various texts and come to the conclusion, along with J. Michael Luddig, uh, that you really cannot uh, sustain that particular case. Yeah. Can you explain that for us a little bit? This was the next thing I was going to ask you, because Mitch McConnell has said he's not going to order the Senate back early to conduct an impeachment trial, which means the earliest this thing can get started is January 19th, the day before the president will be leaving office anyway. And this debate that you mentioned is raging over whether an impeachment can actually be conducted after the president has left office. There are a couple of uh, historical examples here, but they're not all that helpful, both kind of uh, ambivalent in how you would judge them. So uh, lay this case out for us. Well, again, it always helps to read the text. I mean, uh, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments, and that obviously includes the president of the United States. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation, meaning they're kind of like jurors. So that's why you put it. When the president of the United States is tried, right? then the chief justice shall preside. But it turns out he is not the president of the United States after January 22nd. And so then the question is, who can you then sue? He is not the president of the United States. He's not a civil officer of the United States. He's not the vice president. So when you flip over to Article um, 2, Section 4, it turns out the only people who can be subject to the impeachment procedures that I've just mentioned to you are the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States. And he's none of those people. He's just a former guy. And so, of course, you might want to disqualify him. But I think before 
before you could disqualify him, you have to have it within your institutional capabilities to try him. And given the way this thing is worked, they can try the president, but they cannot try any private citizen for impeachment, even a former president. Uh, so what happens is is a very interesting textual case, and that's why Pelosi was insistent upon that. If you begin the trial and while he's a president, can you continue it after? Uh, you know, it takes a very fine mind to do that. My inclination would be to say no, because I think that the basic intuition here is that the whole purpose of impeachment is to get the president out of office. And if he's gone under his own steam because of the expiration of the term, uh, then I think that largely the purposes of impeachment are nuggatory. So I don't think, in effect, that this can be done. The next question, Troy, I'm going to answer it before you ask it, <laughs> is who gets to decide whether you could do this, right? Yes. Now, what typically happens is, generally speaking, we think that anything that involves impeachment is not subject to judicial review, right? And, and so what happens, this is a jurisdictional challenge. And, you know, if it turns out the Senate doesn't have jurisdiction, it shouldn't be hearing the challenge at all. And if it does, well, obviously it should go on. I think the answer is, the way this thing has gone thus far is that in all these previous impeachments, the chief justice is given the full power to determine questions of law. And then, in fact, because they are sworn on oath or affirmation, you treat the senators as though they're a kind of jurors without having dispositive authority over the legal case. So my best guess in this uncharted territory is that it's the chief justice to decide. He's enough of a textualist then I think he will come out the way that I would on this particular case, because I see no non-textual arguments that con contradict what the text requires. This is not a case where the purposes are at odds with the written text, and the procedures are reasonably precise, both in Article 1 and in Article 2. So I think the answer is that they cannot do it. I think that one should regard the impeachment as an effort for show. And of course, uh, Ms. Pelosi is proud that he's the only president who's been impeached twice. She's still in office. I think her conduct with respect to the 25th Amendment and Mike Pence was way over the line, I have to say. Uh, but I'm quite confident she will never be impeached. Okay, so let's engage this as a hypothetical then, because this would require Chief Justice Roberts saying that they could go ahead with it. But there, there is also some controversy over the idea that a conviction could also lead to the president being barred from holding office in the future, both whether that's actually possible and whether that can be done by a simple majority vote as opposed to the two-thirds vote of the Senate that's actually required to convict. What's your diagnosis on those questions? Well, I think that, this, again, the text is pretty clear. It says, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend farther than the removal of office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any offer of honest trust and profit under the United States, okay? And so they don't distinguish the procedures that are used to determine the guilt or innocence from those which are used on the sanctions. So I think what happens is it is within the discretion of the Senate to decide after he's removed what kinds of disqualifications you put on. Uh, the operative phrase that you want to talk is it shall not extend further than to removal from office, which means it could be even less than. So it is quite possible to have a trial for impeachment and to say we will censure the president. Uh, the hard question is, can you have a trial, not remove him from office and say, oh, 
What you cannot do is conduct foreign affairs anymore. I think the answer is you cannot cripple the office because if he is not enabled to do these things, there's nothing which says that the vice president can assume that role. And it would be fundamentally crazy to try to divide the office of the presidency between two holders and ask the vice president to hold his previous stuff. Uh, So I think the only kinds of remedies that can be imposed to avoid this structural calamity is, in fact, a censure of one kind or another of fine or something like that. But I don't think that you could move powers. And then, of course, it can go no further than disqualification. Well, here you've got more flexibility. You could disqualify him for five years or for 10 years from the presidency or from anything less. Uh, So at that particular point, I think if there were jurisdiction, uh, the Senate would certainly be within its powers to take anything that they want to do from zero to 100 in terms of the disqualifications. You then have to figure out, well, how are you going to do this? And it turns out that here you don't have a map because one of the things that's quite clear is that the Constitution leaves it to the Senate to devise its own particular rules and protocols uh, to what's going on in this particular case. And they could do it in advance if they want, or they can do it on an ad hoc basis. But as I said before, you know that judicial review is not the for this, that would take you to the court. And it's impossible to assume that the chief justice first does this in the impeachment trial of the president and then puts on his other hat and goes back to the United States Supreme Court and rules there. And another way to understand this is you have to put the Constitution in context. That is, it turns out that this article was passed and adopted long before judicial review was established in the courts. That only dates to Marbury and Madison in 1803. And in fact, I think the correct interpretation, very unfashionable, but correct nonetheless, of Marbury and Madison is that the Congress could not force the Supreme Court to take jurisdictions in cases that are not given to it under Article Three. There's nothing whatsoever about the structure of the Constitution that says that the court has judicial supremacy. That is a judicial gloss of momentous proportion, one that I would have happily, I think happily made, because in a federalist system, you have to have a final arbitrator as between the various branches of government, which are independent, and to heal with the federalist question. It's not like England, where everything is concentrated in parliament, so you don't have these interbranch and inter- level intergovernmental levels of conflict. And so judicial review was introduced out of this grim necessity, but it certainly doesn't apply in the case where you're worried about whether or not you could remove the president from office. And so I think the answer is no judicial review was contemplated at the beginning. And the exceptions that we have now to create judicial review should not be read so broadly as to get rid of the fairly delicate scheme and that was put together in the combination of Article 1 and Article 2 of the Constitution. Final question that I'll ask you, Richard, a little different, but I ask it just because this is the last time that you'll be able to offer a diagnosis of Donald Trump on the show while he's still president. There are a million different theories of what Donald Trump has meant, but one of the more prominent ones is that it means that the Republican Party has outgrown in large measure the constraints of classical liberalism, that this is now a populist party that even though it still cuts taxes and regulations is much more comfortable intervening in markets, especially for disfavored industries like tech, much more strident than live and let live on cultural matters. And that people like yourself and your fellow travelers are now superannuated men on the right. It's about populism and nationalism and what they'd call the common good, which if it's true, 
would be bad news for you, Richard, because it doesn't look like the Democratic Party has any seats left on the bandwagon for free market types. So to, to what degree do you buy the thesis that classical liberals are now politically homeless? Or do you think we're overreading this? Um, I think you're overreading it mainly because the tempers of the time can change on all sorts of issues. Uh, all you need to do is to wait till Biden puts into place the kinds of programs that he has and that Trump might be sympathetic to, right? Uh, drug regulation and price controls. Uh, Biden is very strongly pro-union. Trump is very strongly pro-worker, which could easily be read as pro-union on all of these things. Uh, I think that these things, the aggressive antitrust laws and so forth will lead to serious economic returns. Donald Trump, for whatever reason, made mistake after mistake on some of these issues, but they were relatively limited compared to the things that he did right. The way in which I like to understand Donald Trump doesn't generalize to any other human being because he is, in fact, a one-of-a-kind man. And Everything that he believes comes not from independent thought. He's not like Professor Richard A. Epstein who sits down and reads the classics and comes up with his own views based upon text and history and so forth. It's based, in his case, on personal experience. And what does he think? He thinks in domestic market, every time the federal or state governments try to regulate the way in which he runs his hotel business, these guys are nuts. And so he becomes uh, basically very strong against domestic regulation. On the other hand, every time he sees a foreign competitor coming in, he goes crazy. And so what happens is he's basically very much in favor of putting up the walls around the particular nation. And, and I do think that that's exactly the way in which he starts to work. I think people underestimate his intelligence. I think he's actually quite a bit smarter than they give it to. Uh, but they don't underestimate the amount of passion and preconception that he starts to bring to these things. Um, I know a fair number of people who've worked with him in the Trump administration and so forth. And they say, if you sit down with him one-on-one -on -one in the room, he's just another president, listens, seems to catch on pretty quickly and understand what's going on. And then you, you know what the answer is. You put him in front of a typewriter at four o'clock in the morning and let him cheat. And essentially what he does is he hands out bouquets and roses to the Democratic Party because every one of the single blunders that he makes week in and week out is something that they can exploit. And I think the irony is, and others have said this first, so I do not claim originality, only truth, is that Donald Trump would still be treated president today if he had stopped twittering or had been stopped from Twittering uh, back in January of 2017, which you will recall is the time at which I called for his resignation. I will. <laughs> You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, also called the Libertarian, at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. Thank you.